I'd like to join my colleagues in wel welcoming our guests and the entire community to the conference and to this panel entitled Development and Modernization. I am pleased to uh, introduce our speaker, Dr. Nader Fergani. He is director of the Almakash Center for Research in Egypt. He has taught and undertaken research at numerous institutions in Egypt and outside and acted as a consultant to many Arab and international organizations. Dr. Fergani has published on demography, international migration, labor markets, education, and development in Egypt and the Arab and Arab countries. He was a lead author of the Arab Human Development Report, published this year, a report which received a tremendous amount of attention and incited a great deal of controversy and discussion throughout the world. I am also delighted to introduce two panelists who will speak after Dr. Fergani. First, Professor Khurshid Ahmad. He has had the portfolio of the Federal Ministry of Planning and Development and has been Deputy Chair of the Planning Commission in the Government of Pakistan. He is an, also an academic and has taught at Karachi University in the United Kingdom and has headed the Islamic Research Academy in Karachi. He has written over 30 books in English, over 20 in Urdu, and contributed to a large number of magazines. And he is one of the most important voices on this subject in the world. I'm also delighted to introduce Mr. Hazam Sagi. He has worked in journalism since 1974, first as Asafir in Beirut and since, 19, and since 1988 for Al-Hayat in London. He has written books in Arabic about Pan-Arabism, Islam and Lebanese politics. He has also edited a book in English titled The Predicament of the Individual in the Middle East. First, Dr. Fergani. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me start by recognizing the fact that this presentation is based on work done in the context of the first Arab Human Development Report, which was co-sponsored by the Regional Bureau for Arab States of UNDP, the United Nations Development Program, as well as the Arab Fund for Economic and Social Development. The report was launched in July of 2002. And uh, perhaps I should also start by uh, saying that uh, my presentation is, uh, adopts the concept of human development, which is a concept of development that starts from the human capabilities approach that was uh, developed and popularized by Amartya Sen. A few points on the concept. The concept uh, recognizes that building human capabilities, by human capabilities we mean uh, people's uh, options to exercise the kind of life that they value or uh, aspire for. And uh, human capabilities are many and vary with the progress of humanity. But at least there are two very basic human capabilities, the acquisition of knowledge and the ability to lead a healthy and a long life. In addition to these two basic capabilities, the realm of human capabilities extends to the non-material aspects of human welfare, such as enjoyment of freedom, beauty, acquisition of knowledge, self-respect, and respect of human rights. Uh, as a result of this uh, understanding of human capabilities, the concept of human welfare in human development extends way beyond the economic or material aspects of welfare. It does recognize the importance of 
enjoyment of civil and political liberties, the uh, ability to participate effectively in the affairs of society, and so on. As a result, the contradiction that sometimes arises between traditional and limited concepts of development and democracy and political participation never arises in human development. Definitionally, effective participation of people in the affairs of society is a major requirement of genuine human development. You build human capabilities in order to use them effectively, and it's through the effective utilization of human capabilities in affairs of society, whether economic, political, or social, we end up with the resulting level of welfare that goes way beyond economic and material means. Another uh, result of this kind of starting point, definitional point, is that human development does not admit any form of discrimination or exclusion, whether based on gender, race, or whatever criteria you want to consider. The second major point I would like to present your attention is the assessment of the state of human development in Arab countries, and by Arab countries here I mean all countries that belong to the Arab League, the 22 political entities, not all states yet, that belong to the Arab League, and the assessment of the Arab Human Development Report of the state of human development in Arab countries is that there is a crisis in human development. If we take the dimensions of building human capabilities and utilizing them effectively and the resulting level of human welfare, then the assessment is that human capabilities are weak in Arab countries, they are poorly utilized, and as a result, the level of human welfare in Arab countries is quite low. Uh, uh, the report summarizes this situation in the so-called three major deficits impeding human development in Arab countries. The first deficit that's recognized by the report is a deficit of freedom and, and good governance. The second is a deficit of women empowerment, and the third is a deficit of knowledge acquisition. And the report sees that a process of human development in the Arab countries would require that these deficits are uh, tackled and hopefully transferred into the opposites, that's to say assets in terms of knowledge acquisition, empowerment of women, and expansion of freedoms and building good governance. The second main issue that I would like to present to you is the report's assessment of why is this situation, why is this crisis in development in Arab countries. Obviously, there are many interacting reasons for this, but one of the main determinants of this crisis in human development in Arab countries, according to the report's team, is that the region or Arab countries suffer bad governance. And let me just quickly point out that bad governance here is not limited to the national level, but extends to the regional and the global levels. In that sense, the Arab region may be recognized as the bad governance region of the world par excellence. Not only is governance bad on the national level, it's bad on the regional level, it's bad in terms of global governance or how global governance mechanisms impact on, on the region. Let me start by national governance. The opposite of bad governance or good governance as recognized in the report has three major characteristics. The first characteristic is that it's rigorously institutional. The second aspect is that the system of governance should be truly representative of the people and hence would uh, 
try to attain their interests, let's say build human development. The third requirement of good governance, according to the report, is that it should be fully accountable. I mean, there should be accountability mechanisms within the system of governance in addition to accountability to the people at large. Now, I'm sure I can go into detailed uh, uh, explanations of why starting from this kind of definition of good governance, governance is bad on the national level in Arab countries. But let me just uh, mention two things that are very prominent. I mean, I'm not going through the paper. I'm just trying to save some time by giving the main points. The first is that there is a sheer absence of institutional governance and accountability mechanisms in Arab countries. And one major aspect of this that has received a lot of attention in the last few years in Arab countries is that it seems that Arab countries are giving the world a new form of governance, which is what people call a Republican monarchy or or <clears throat> the second aspect of, of this system of bad governance that has been receiving a lot of attention, especially in the last few months, is that corruption, small and on a grand scale, seems to be extensive and increasing in Arab countries. Let me move to, to the regional level. The major uh, manifestation of inadequacy of, of uh, bad governance on the regional level in Arab countries can be summarized in two uh, aspects. The first is that Arab institutional uh, governance arrangements on the regional level fail to deliver the potentially tremendous benefits of Arab cooperation and integration. Perhaps there is no other region in the world that can benefit from um, cooperation and perhaps integration, maybe even unity like the Arab countries, but the present arrangements for uh, pan-Arab governance are quite limited. The other aspect of this failure to deliver the potential benefits of Arab uh, cooperation is the fact that like national governance, regional governance excludes to a great extent effective participation by people in the affairs of the region. Related to uh, bad governance on the regional level is the issue that has been raised and probably stands in, in the mind of everybody coming to this conference is that uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict and how it's handled on the regional level in Arab countries has exacted a heavy toll on human development in terms of destruction of human capabilities, in terms of destruction of human welfare. This uh, takes us directly to uh, and the, how the region has been badly governed by global mechanisms. Uh, because, uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's our assessment that, that the way uh, the world older is, is uh, governed now has been uh, rather uh, detrimental to the cause of human development in the region. Not only has the support, the unconditional support of the State of Israel uh, uh, helped the destruction of human capabilities and uh, a major uh, detrimental impact on human welfare, 
but uh, the related aspects of the Western interest on secu in, in securing oil reserves in the region has resulted in significant changes in the region in the last few years that can only be thought of as detrimental to human development. I mean, the region has witnessed a return to foreign military presence after decades of independence. In addition, the region probably suffered more than any other region in the world from sanctions regimes, some very uh, blatant cases are, are known. I mean, the case of the sanctions regimes on Iraq, the way it has impacted on, on the destruction of life and human welfare of, of ordinary Iraqis and Iraqi children is very well known. Uh, two more aspects that I think are important to mention here with respect to how governance on the global level is impacting negatively on human development in the region. The first is the control of the United Nations uh, by Western powers, especially the United States. I'm sure you're close enough here in Princeton to New York to know of the standard joke that the UN is now called UNA, the United Nations of America, not the United Nations. And uh, the way the Western powers, led by the United States, have, may I say, hijacked the Security Council and the UN to further Western interests, I think, is having a very negative impact, not only on the Arab region, but on the world at large. Let me conclude by saying that uh, on this level of global governance, the present American administration, I think, is uh, having is trying to build a world order that will have a very negative impact on human development, not only in the Arab region, but on the world at large. I think in the ultimate analysis, it will be detrimental to the uh, U.S. itself, to its image in the world, to its role in the world. Well, I leave it at that. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Professor? Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Dr. Farghani, fellow panelists, friends and colleagues, I deem it an honor to be with you this morning and would like to thank the Princeton University and its Department of Political Science in particular for the initiative they have taken. To me it is significant that Princeton in 1953 organized first international colloquium on Islam. It was a very important occasion when the Islamic world was beginning to come out of the shadow of colonial rule. That colloquium was followed by a second colloquium co-sponsored by Princeton and Punjab University in 1957 in Lahore. You set the tone for debate in the 50s. 
Now in 2002, after 9-11, we are faced with a qualitatively different situation and I hope this initiative of yours may again set the tone for debate, discussion and responses in the future. I regard this important because while New York had every right to mourn innocent deaths of 9-11 on the 11th of September this month, but you have been more compassionate more understanding. By widening the scope of that morning and moving to the causes, the forces and factors responsible for that situation. And that's why understanding and responding to the Islamic world is the theme of your conference. So I compliment you for this initiative. We are now moving from mourning for some towards concern for all. All victims of injustice in whatever shape that may be. This is a significant development. Coming to the theme of the panel, that is development and modernization. My response would be in two sections. First, I would like to briefly respond to the presentation by the key speaker and the report on Arab development which came to light three months back, in which Professor Rani has played an important role, and its first important document, in my view, of self-criticism by Arabs and the Muslims, and I very much value and appreciate this effort. However, I have a feeling that while whatever has been said about the Arab world contains a large grain of truth, my concern would be more global. The entire third world and not the developed world totally excluded because development which has been the catch word in the 20th century is facing its most critical crisis. Some of the thinkers have even started writing epitaph of the whole developmental effort. I do not belong to that group that I must say that development both at the conceptual level and at the level of actual achievement bringing about changes in the living conditions of the people of the world 
at both these levels is faced with very serious crisis a crisis that invites us to think about the fundamentals and that's why while i very much appreciate the shift from mere obsession with gdp to human resource development and the effort to look upon development in the context of human development with all its richness yet i think that the concept of development on which developmental efforts have taken place during the last 50 years is flawed development is not mere economic development development is not even mere social economic development yes human development is an important dimension and improvement yet development has to be seen in the context of the totality of a society of its culture and civilization and the idea of having one particular prototype of development to be transplanted and imposed on other parts of the world i think therein lies the main flaw in the whole approach development has to be seen in the context of every culture development has to be seen as an indigenous process yes there are external factors there are external influences you cannot live in isolation yet development must be based on the values traditions endowments of the society and in keeping with the values and traditions of the culture in which this effort is taking place you cannot drive a wedge between the two yes choice as amartya sen has focused and highlighted by the key speaker is important but capacity to make choice resources to make choice informed choice and not choice as such are very important dimensions and that's why the whole concept of development has to be reviewed and my main concern is with the totality of the secular paradigm within which this limited concept of development was born has been groomed and exported during the last 50 years yes choice is possible only with freedom freedom is rooted in the concept of individual and the western paradigm the key element is individual and freedom from the islamic perspective as i see it while freedom and individual are essential elements of this paradigm it's not sufficient freedom and individual must also move to the second element that is responsibility without responsibility proper discharge of freedom would not take place solidarity individual is the key 
what the individual operates in the context of a family, of a society, of a culture, humanity. And finally, justice. Unless these four elements go together in a balanced and harmonious manner, freedom, responsibility, solidarity and justice, the true paradigm in which development can take place will remain missing. My next point relates to another very important dimension of development and that is its relation to power. It's not merely a question of political power, power in its multifarious dimensions. Yet power is a very important dimension. The economics of the left, Latin American critics, even the revolution theology of South America have tried to come to grips with this issue. But the fact is that without taking into view the totality of the global power context, the developmental issue can never be resolved adequately. Permit me to say that in this context, you have to look into history. If you look into the 18th century, we find that globally, the third world of today, Europe and America, roughly were at the same level of economic development and industrialization. The global manufacturing, we find 73% in 1750 was in the third world countries and only 234 in Europe and America. The per capita income differential was 1 to 3 maximum. Over the years, what has happened? Because of the global economic and political situation, the colonial system and its uh, consequences, the situation scenario has totally changed. Today, 87% of the world GDP is in the hands of people belonging to 22 developed countries. Three billionaires own wealth equivalent to the total GDP of 48 least developed countries of the world. And despite that, poverty has not been eliminated even in the developed world. In the richest countries as the United States of America, 13% of the people live below poverty line. 1.3 billion people in the world live below poverty line, which is earning $1 a day. 2.5 billion below earnings of $2 a day. We are spending $2.3 every day on every cow in the European farm community. This is a global system of injustice. And unless we address to these core issues of power, asymmetry of power, both economic and political, the issue of development cannot be resolved equitably. So, unless there is a concern for creating a just world order, the issue of development would remain a hope, not a reality. That brings me to the next important dimension, that is globalization. Globalization 
is a reality. Globalization is a necessity. Globalization is not an unmixed evil. We are all for it, provided this is a responsible globalization leading to justice for all, not for a few. So it is in that context that my main worry is that a kind of abstraction has taken place, society has been reduced to economy, economy has been reduced to market, and market is supposed to be the key decision maker in all major issues, and to promote that we have this philosophy of globalization, privatization, deregulation, and what not. I think in the context of asymmetry of power, of gross inequalities of income, wealth and influence, of institutional and structural bottlenecks, globalization cannot be a blessing for all. And that is why there is resistance to that. UN and Security Council has been rightly referred to by Professor Farhani. That's not the only institution, World Bank, IMF, IFC, WTO, and you name it. So these realities have to be faced. And I would therefore submit that globalization can be a blessing only if we realize that it has to take place in the context of genuine pluralism. That is the key issue. Are we heading towards a world of hegemony where one particular identity tries to impose itself upon the rest of the humanity? Or are we prepared to accept a world where different identities could coexist, could interact? There could be genuine pluralism and that is possible only not merely with good governance, but responsible governance. Unless we move from the cliché of governance in the idiom of the West to responsible governance in which others have an equal right, despite being poor or weak, to have an honorable living and to have the right to maintain their identity. Without sacrificing their identity, we want to build a global society and not a global society which stands for only one particular set of values or economic and political system. That brings me to the issue of relationship between development and self-reliance. Development and modernization. But modernization does not mean westernization, Americanization. Modernization means use of modern technologies to grow from our own base, to achieve something which makes life worth living. What is being talked about fundamentalism or extremism is primarily a result of denying the people the right to be themselves 
to be self-reliant, to be respectable members of the global community. That is the real issue. So from that viewpoint, it is dialogue, it's coexistence, it's pluralism, it is diversity in identities and respecting those diversities. And that is possible only if we move from the anarchy of despotism to democracy of respect for law, for justice, for norms. A strong and weak have right to coexist, even to compete, because no superpower has remained a superpower forever. History is a graveyard of 36 superpowers. And we have seen demise of two superpowers in at least my lifetime. So we must not become arrogant, because arrogance breeds hatred. Humility generates love and respect. Dialogue is the language. Coexistence is the framework. Plurality is the model. Diversity, authentic diversity is the way. Then only we would be able to have development and modernization. It is in this context that when we come across phrases like either you are with us or you are against us, that causes great agony and concern in the rest of the world. This is not the language of a democrat. It could be the language of a demagogue, of a despot, or a terrorist. Because acceptance of dissent and plurality and diversity, that is the key to dialogue. Otherwise it's rhetoric and it's monologue, not a dialogue. So that is the context in which we are meeting. And let me conclude by saying that America is the only superpower. America is the richest and most powerful country of the world today. I come from 9,000 miles in my age and a lot of ailments to share with you the concerns of the Muslim people. Yes, leaders of the Muslim countries have joined hands with the leaders of the West and America. But you must have concern for the feelings and aspirations of the people. And the way people think is that we respect America, we want to be friendly with America. My message to the American people and American intellectuals is that we have no dispute, land or otherwise, with you. Provided you are prepared to be concerned about universal values, diversity of cultures and civilizations, respect and dignity of other peoples, and their right to live according to their values in a shared world. America should provide moral leadership. Its leadership should not come merely by the force of might and brinkmanship. That is the way towards the creation of a just and peaceful world. We cannot fight terrorism by terrorism. We cannot fight evil by evil. Evil can be eliminated only if we are prepared to replace it by good. That is the Quranic principle 
ولا تستوي الحسنه ولا السيئه ادفع بالتي هي احسن good and bad are not equal remove bad and evil by what is good it's only then that good will prevail that is my message to the american intellectuals let us be partners towards making a world better place to live in for all human beings despite these inequalities asymmetry of power we must realize that none of this is permanent at one time america was a british colony now america is the only superpower we do not grudge or envy that position but if we expect america to provide moral leadership and not try to abdicate all those principles which are the common achievement of mankind your own constitution establishes the principle of equality of all human beings international law treaties disarmament supremacy of global institutions our national ones that is the way to peace so let us go for an infrastructure that is based on justice on rule for law weak and strong can coexist if both accept supremacy of law but if the strong try to impose their authority by force there would is bound to take place a reaction i am not fond of huntington and i do not believe in his thesis of clash of civilizations i believe in coexistence of civilizations yet there is a very significant sentence in his book which says that terrorism is the weapon of the weak against the strong if the strong are not prepared to let the weak live unfortunately they have a tendency to fall into the trap of terrorism which doesn't look good to anyone even those who invoke that are in suffering end so let me make this plea to american intellectuals american people that provide moral leadership to the world and permit me to conclude by a reference to one of your best presidents president eisenhower who in his farewell address to the nation when he was retiring from the white house he warned about a certain factor which has become important in policy making in america i quote this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is now in the american experience the total influence economic political and even spiritual is felt in every city every state house and every office of the federal government in the councils of government we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought by the military industrial complex the potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist the military industrial complex should never be allowed to endanger our liberties our democratic process we should take nothing for granted and court permit me to say that we in the third world have suffered 
from European colonialisms for three centuries. We may be prepared to suffer for another half a century or century by American imperialism, if it so chooses. But believe me, if your leadership resorts to this dictate of brigmanship and those who are not with us against us, then American constitution, American values, American democracy, American liberties would be at stake. And that is what has begun to raise its head. Privacy, in the name of security, all that has been regarded as valuable is under threat. So we have a common cause with you. Let us rise above the demands or aspirations of particular groups and see how we can all cooperate in building a more just and humane society where many flowers may flourish, where variety could be the way, where we all could live and let others live. That perhaps is a contribution we can make towards the 21st century. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
particularly in this age of globalization and fierce competition, the Arab countries continue to face the outside world and challenges of the region individually. As a result, the Arabs are not reaping the fruits of close cooperation in the area of human development and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Indeed, Arab disunity is the greatest obstacle to Arab Renaissance. It's the end of the quote. In fact, the need to develop a certain sense of cooperation among Arabs and to create the structures that would carry out this task confront us, Arabs, with a very serious challenge to be met. But unfortunately, we can't jump to deal with the economic, financial, or even technical aspects of the Arab, co of Arab cooperation without dealing with the political aspect, and to a certain extent the ideological one. It goes without saying that democracy is the inevitable condition in this process. But even democracy itself would sound, especially in the countries of the Mashrik between Iraq and Lebanon, a mere intellectual luxury if we did not solve the problem of the nation state. How to develop the sense and reality of the nation state among Arabs before starting to surpass it. Many ills that the paper describes derive from the weakness of the nation state in the Arab world, the way I see it. Trying to apply the European scenario in a different historical context might deepen the fragmentation and the suspicions among peoples and communities though we have already a surplus of this fragmentation and those suspicions. The European example, if I may borrow the uh, Marxist terminology, is a narrative of culminating the state. Then we witness the gradual disintegration of the nation state. While we still waiting for the dawn of the nation-state in the Arab world. The Arab world in its modern history did not have anything similar to the Westphalia Treaty in the mid-17th century in which the roots of the European nation-state lie, nor did it experience a deep religious reformation the way we saw in Germany when Luther Lutheranism paved the way Actually, it, in a sense, helped create the Ger German nationalism. On the contrary, the nation-state in the Arab and Muslim world was imposed by French and the British colonialists. And this redrawing of the map process was perceived by most Arabs and Muslims as a tool to fragment us and render our unity impossible. It sort of, it seemed as if it's a rupture 
with a golden past. From the very beginning, this fledgling nation-state found itself confronted by two challenges. One from below the state. We can call it a sociological alternative. Blood relations, kinship, sex, religions, etc. And the other from behind the state. And we, we can call it the ideological alternative. Arab unity, Islamic unity uh, in the 40s and 50s in some Arab countries, Syrian unity. These two challenges were reinforced by the fact that the State of Israel was born in 1948. This further weakened the popular legitimacy of the Arab nation state. These challenges work sometimes in a concerted way, but sometimes they work in a contradictory way. But in general, they help to create a certain identification between the mere idea of Arab cooperation and some exclusive groups or particular states. In certain experiences, this juxtaposition amounted to a schizophrenic behavior. Take, for example, a state saying all the time it wants to promote through development and schooling, etc., a sense of nationhood, and on the other hand, its ideological and educational apparatus highlight our belonging and loyalty to an Arab or Islamic nation. Thus, what is done in the field of, say, development is undone in the field of consciousness. The results produced by this collage became a striking character of the Arab political discourse and reality. In Jordan, for instance, Transjordanians who are so proud of pre-political kinship Arabism tend to equate the idea of Arab political solidarity with Palestinianism. In Lebanon, some of the population, some of the Lebanese want the Syrians out and the other the others want them in, not because they like them, but because they are afraid of those who want them out. <laughs> Beneath the surface of brotherhood, some racist stereotypes are spreading when it comes to describing the Syrian brother. In 1958, Egypt and Syria were merged in a unity which was broken in 1961. The Egyptian intervention in Yemen, in the Yemen in 1962, and the Saudi counter-intervention were behind the first modern uh, uh, Arab civil war. Most vulgar and aggressive was the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990-91, which was very popular, unfortunately, in the Arab world. Looking at countries as fragmented as Lebanon, Sudan, and Iraq, I think that the task of building a nation state would take us tens of years to finish. This doesn't mean that I am at all refuting or even doubting 
the importance of cooperation among Arab states. But I would, I would have preferred to see a higher degree of assertion and highlight, highlighting attached to the Arab nation states, which, go, which give confidence to their population, to their people, in order to uh, come to the, to the uh, domain of cooperation confident. Uh, a more attention to the building, to the consolidating of modern, secular, and of, 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 of nation states on modern, secular, and democratic lines, and upholding subsequently the politics of citizenship in the place that the politics of identity occupy now. The report of the United Nations Development Programme, whose main author was Dr. Ferjani, shook deeply the stagnant political thought in the Middle East, especially that it showed how we, the Arabs, are and to what extent we are responsible to the shortcomings we face. I hope that what I just said is a derivative of the same critical spirit and outlook, hoping to see something about the nation-state in a next report, maybe. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, colleagues on the panel, both for your remarks and your cogency. We therefore have a good amount of time for questions. Uh, please identify yourself, uh, and uh, it would be helpful if you kept your questions as short as possible. Bart Gelman? in the Arab world to your report and the extent to which you think it's being grappled with seriously? Do you want to? Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, uh, I don't think I should get into the details of the so-called three deficits. There is very uh, detailed documentation of... Uh, these deficits in the report itself, which is available on the net on the UNDP uh, website, in both Arabic and English, by the way. But uh, to go back to your issue of uh, reaction to the report, uh, logically, a critical report would not be expected to be received warmly by the present power structure that is blamed by the report for the present ills of Arab countries. And that is what happened. Nevertheless, interest in the report is building gradually and, and unstoppably, unfortunately. I mean, we, we have to spend most of our time, the report team, catering to media and, and uh, demand and uh, interest in discussing the report in different fora in Arab countries. Uh, we're hoping, actually, that this process of lively debate on the main messages of the report would be the beginning of a, a major uh, process of social innovation in Arab countries that would help uh, 
build human development. But could I take this opportunity to respond to Hazim's point on, on the tension between the nation state and the potential for development in the region? A number of points here. Uh, one, uh, as uh, Hazim mentioned, the nation state in the the present nation states in the Arab region are essentially artificial. I mean, they are a figment of uh, Anglo-French imperialism. And they are in a state of flux as well. I mean, if in this new age of, quote-unquote, American imperialism, these nation states could change character and form. So, in a sense, we don't have to really worry very much about very artificial entities. Let me add to this that the famous thesis of the soft state in the Arab region, I think, is not totally founded. I mean, the nation state in the Arab region now is selectively soft. I mean, it's soft where it chooses to be, and it's very hard where it chooses to be. It's very hard on issues of security and serving the interests of the ruling cliques. And that's actually the main point, the main reason the present political arrangements in Arab nation states do not serve Arab unity and integration because they, every nation state is centered, the governance regime in every nation state is centered around the interests of a certain ruling clique. And the interests of the ruling cliques do not necessarily represent the people at large within the nation state itself or within the Arab uh, region at large. Having said that, I, I wonder why should we have to wait for these uh, entities that are artificial to a great extent and at the same time have clearly failed in, in, in attaining human development in their boundaries, why do we have to wait for them to self-destruct? I mean, they will eventually. Uh, and it seems to me that there is every reason to try to supersede the present systems of governance within the present Arab nation states towards a pan-Arab system that would really serve the interests of the Arab people at large. And I hence, on this point, I conclude by saying that I believe that there is a very strong synergy between reforming governance on the level <coughs> of the nation state in Arab countries and the possibility of building effective Arab integration. Well, here it seems we are. I think the nation state is artificial in every non-European uh, place on earth. It is the commodity which was exported to us by European colonialism. It was not accurate, it was not fair, it was not... Many times we find that there are shortcomings related to the nation state, but it is the only game in town. Uh, I mean, empirically speaking, the other uh, alternatives did not work. Uh, alternative speaking, uh, 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 empirically speaking, this is the uh, political unit nowadays in our world. You have to be a member of the United Nations, and these are the states we have. And the, the African experience and the Arab experience as well taught us that all the endeavors to change, unfortunately, to change the colonial borders caused wars 
uh, worse than, than the status quo of the uh, nation state brought to us by, uh, by uh, European colonialism. More than that, I think this uh, nation state, sometimes it fragments, but sometimes it unifies. Uh, for instance, if I take places like uh, Lebanon or Iraq or, uh, or, uh, or Sudan, maybe it wa if it was left to uh, uh, the population there with the history of civil strifes, they would have authored a smaller entity than the entity which was uh, created by colonialism. So, this is not an apology to what is going on to the, to the, to the states, to the existing states. And by, I mean, by the way, I really do uh, distinguish between the nation state based on the uh, principle of citizenship and the existing Arab states, uh, which uh, Dr. Farjani was describing rightly. I mean, these states respond mainly to one function of the state, which is repression. The state is much more than repression. I mean, uh, most of the, uh, the absent functions of them, you better read the report to know uh, about how non-states these states are. I'm going to be rather frank, and I hope that will be permitted in this scholarly environment. I listened carefully to the three presentations, and I have to say I didn't think that they responded to the question which I assume Professor Herbst you put to them. This conference is about understanding and responding to the Islamic world after 9-11. The report which Dr. Fergani led is a very important contribution to this debate. It was, as Professor Ahmed said, a very, very frank report, a frank act of self-criticism. And it's led to a great deal of discussion. And one of the themes that one has seen in, in the media's comments on this report is that the backwardness, the lack of human development in the Arab countries is to some extent due to Islam. I don't believe that myself, but that is an allegation which has been made. And I think it's rather important that at this, at this conference we should address that question. Are the shortcomings, the developmental shortcomings of the Arab world due to, in some respect, due to aspects of Islam, or are they not? And I agree very much with what has been said by the, by the panelists about the impact of British and French colonialism on the Middle East. It's rather uncomfortable to be a, a Brit of my generation because you hear an awful lot about that and you find you're, you're mostly agreeing with it. But the question I'm putting through you, Chairman, to the panelists is whether there are Islamic factors which contribute to explanation of the developmental backwardness of the Arab world as reflected in, in Professor Fergani's report. Why don't we let the panelists respond? <clears throat> well, uh, of course, everybody saw this report in the light of what he likes to see. I mean, 
definitely that the report does not contain directly or indirectly anything that relates the development crisis in Arab countries to Islam. Let me take the three deficits I mentioned. Uh, technology acquisition, for example. Absolutely, Islam has nothing to do with the lack of knowledge acquisition in Arab countries now. Islam did not prevent Arabs during previous stages of their history from being major contributors to the development of knowledge on a world scale. Let me take the other deficit of women empowerment, which comes to most people's minds when they speak of the effect of Islam on well. All Arab countries that were covered by this report are predominantly Muslim. But nevertheless, the position of women, the status of women varies so tremendously from countries like Tunisia in the West to Saudi Arabia in the East that Islam cannot be an explanatory factor. So Islam is not a monolithic body of thought or practice. It, the, there are progressive interpretations of Islam and there are regressive interpretations of Islam. So where Islam is interpreted progressively, the status of women and human rights and so on are kept and preserved, and there is every possibility for that. Where Islam is interpreted regressively or in a reactionary way, then women would be subdued and, and human rights would be uh, uh, infringed. So uh, absolutely, in my opinion, Islam in itself, but definitely reactionary or regressive interpretations of Islam could be impediments to, to development in any sense, definitely in the sense of human development. May I just also add to what Dr. Fargani has said? We have to differentiate between two things. One is Islam as a value system, as a culture and civilization. The other is contemporary Muslim society, which is not a representative of Islam, which is a hodgepodge of decay within Muslim society, imposition of colonial system on the Muslim lands, and their cultural, intellectual, technological, economic consequences, and the political fracturing of the Muslim world, which is coming up again and again. I agree fully with Dr. Farhani that nation-state is becoming irrelevant and is in the process of elimination. It cannot be given a new lease of life. And nation-state in the European context also had a particular role in history and now surprise states are emerging and the whole concept of nation-state is no longer one that was there as a product of S5 treaty or particularly the crystallization of nation-state in the 19th century. My worry is that while three deficits have been very correctly identified, the answer does not lie merely in sermonizing or suggesting that more education, more empowerment of women, and more allocations for human development would solve the problem. The real impediments, in my view, are some internal, which have become structural and some being part of a global system which is unjust and which is trying to perpetuate the contradictions, even consolidating the obstacles. And that is why, despite five, 50 years 
of so-called developmental strategy and foreign aid and foreign loans, nowhere we find any real developmental transformation taking place. So internal and external, both factors are there, which are attitudinal, which are infrastructural, and which are relationship or linkage with the global system. And unless at all these three levels, we are prepared to have a bold strategy. And in my view, that strategy deserves to be inspired by the values and ideals of Islam, and then only the people could be motivated to really achieve what they would like to achieve. As to the Western experience, empowerment of women is important. It's part of the Islamic milieu. But as an economist, let us try to see what role empowerment of women did take place in the economic transformation of Europe and America. The right to vote in most of the European countries was given after First World War. And in the most advanced country of Switzerland, the right to vote and to be elected has been given only in 1980s and 90s. Empowerment of women is needed in its own right. But to relate it to as a key factor for economic development, I as an economist have reservations. Similarly, if you cannot create an effective infrastructure which provides employment to all, mere empowerment of women is not going to bring about the economic bonanza that we are aiming at. So I think the role of Islam is positive, had been positive. The Muslim society is weak, is not representative of Islam, and there are certain bottlenecks because of this weakness of the Muslim society, again a result of colonial rule as well as our own weaknesses. And that's why I appreciate that the report represents a creative effort to review our own situation and also to find out how we can come out of this malice. Well, uh, I think that, okay, lately with when the, the market of uh, religious, uh, reactionary, civilizational ideas thrived, uh, clash of civilization, etc., some people spoke about the uh, European and American uh, civilization or civilizations, I prefer the word culture actually, as being Christian. And then uh, this made it easier to say Christian versus Jew versus Muslim, so on and so forth. I tend to think that the European, the modern European culture and the modern in the European culture is a product of the break, of breaking Christianity. I mean, Europe could become modern because it break, it broke Christianity, not because it is Christian. In this sense, any reconciliation between religion, uh, as an absolute, uh, concept to be uh, applied in life, in public life, would hinder progress, be it Christianity, be it Islam, be it uh, Judaism, etc. Christianity was reformed because of certain uh, uh, cultural circumstances which uh, played in this direction. 
This did not happen to Islam, which once during the Abbasids, for instance, it could live with civilization and with progress and with uh, with golden age. Uh, it was a, an Islamic golden age. But nowadays, I'm sure there is a necessity to reform Islam in order to be able to live with modernity and uh, coexist with it. Why don't we stay on this point if there were other comments or questions on this point? Thank you very much. I think my question is to the panel as a whole, and I'm taking Professor Ahmed's uh, point um, about globalization. I think it's time for the Arab and the Muslim world to look from within. It is useless to blame America and the West for the ills of their society. And that is connected with the very issue you raised about value system. The Arab Muslim world need a radical shift in the attitude of their values towards freedom, towards self-criticism. Whatever your father says, whatever the teacher, whatever your political ruler, you have no redress whatsoever to speak to him or to her. That is where the intellectual backwardness lie. It's, it's, it's always say, well, Islam, of course, you raise the issue of women. Had women been given their rights in the property since the seventh century until now, the position of women had been radically different from what we see them now. Why? Because men control women. Men control property. And that is one of the issues the Muslim and the Arab world have to look very radically, not just to say, and that's the issue to Farghani, is that don't you think there is too much talk in newspapers by politician leaders and very little action to these wonderful points which you have raised? Other comments or points on this? Over here. Thank you. Um, I'm Lucet Valenzi from Paris. Uh, as a historian, I was very much interested by the report which I read with very much uh, attention and profit. Uh, I tend to be on Saria's uh, side with the idea of the nation state. And I would go beyond what he said. So it's not a question, it's a comment. Uh, I would like to break with the cliche of the artificiality of the nation state in the area. If you take things not from the central provinces of the Arab world, but from the Maghreb side, you can't say that Morocco was a creation of the French. You can't say that Tunisia was. You can't say that Egypt was a creation of the British. What, what about what happened in the 19th century? Besides, since the end of colonialism, except for the Palestinians who, are, who have a national movement but don't have a state and a nation, in the same territory. All the others have existed for more than 50 years. Think of some European countries. Germany was united only 15 years ago, less than 15 years ago. It took centuries for European state nations to become continuous stable entities. It took several wars, including the two world wars, to become, so the idea, the model, is European, the realization has been conflictual, long, and it's not finished in some parts of Europe. Think of the Balkans. 
Okay? So the Arab world is not that different in this respect, but don't say it's all artificial. History has made these entities real, solid, and they have to be improved. And that's another chapter of your report. Rami, do you also want to? Why don't we let Rami Khoury? Yeah. Um, my name is Rami Khoury. I'm a journalist from Palestine and Jordan. Um, I'd like to disagree with your comment and ask a question. The idea that we need a, a whole radical shift in the Arab world, I, I really think that's not accurate. I think the more accurate is as somebody who lives in and travels throughout the Arab world uh, constantly, I find at the grassroots level in homes and offices and, and among individuals and families and community groups, a very modern attitude. People are self-critical, they're analytical, they're political, they're forward-looking, uh, they're problem-solving, they're conflict resolution-oriented. The average dignity, power, hope, um, and uh, productivity and, um, uh, and I think humanity of the average Arab person uh, is, is very powerful and it's very impressive. The problem we have, I think, is in the, in the exercise of political power at the public level, and this is where I think Hazem Sawayi is correct, in that we have this problem of the modern Arab state dealing mainly in uh, issues of repression or, um, or security. So I think there's, there's a great positive things in Arab culture and Arab people, and I, I don't like to talk about the Islamic world. I think you're talking about Muslim individuals and societies that tend to be predominantly Muslim populations, but also have other national, other religions and many different ethnic groups. So there's no, I don't think there's any such thing as an Islamic world, but this Arab-Asian region of the world that defines us is one of great human power and creativity and, and resources, but very poor, uh, it's very poor at the level of public power and the exercise of power. And my question to Hazem is, why do you think, given this um, general uh, dis disappointment, uh, that defines the lives of many people, or maybe most people in the, in the Arab world particularly. Why is there not a Iranian style or some other style uh, resistance or revolt or uprising uh, in the Arab countries? It cannot be explained only by the repression of the states. I mean, you can't get a state that's, that was more oppressive than the Shah of Iran or Marcos in the Philippines or Indonesia or Romania, and those were all overthrown by mass movements. Why is it in the Arab countries that we've never had that kind of uh, mass popular um, desire for change and to, to change political leadership? It's enough on the table. Why don't we let our panelists respond at this point? <laughs> I want to take the issue of the nation state again. I grant the lady that some uh, of the present uh, Arab political entities are not artificial in the sense that their borders were drawn by, uh, by colonialist forces, colonial forces. But nevertheless, I think all nation states that have passed the test of history had certain elements of viability that many of these entities, even those that were not created, by uh, imperialist designs lack. And I think this is, this is the ultimate uh, criteria. Whether the present nation states, as they are constituted, are viable in a historical sense or in the sense of building human development or not. Uh, I'm, I feel very strongly about the issue of the empowerment of women that I would like to speak to it for a second. Um, now it's very well accepted that 
any society that marginalizes women loses the creative and productive potential of half of its citizen. But more importantly, there is a growing body of scientific evidence that a society that does that loses the creativity and uh, productivity of the better half of its population. Now, it's true. I mean, there is a growing body of evidence that women do have mental, uh, psychological, and even physical abilities that would make them uh, outperform uh, men in many creative and, 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 and difficult activities. But the more important aspect, in, in my opinion, is that a society that deprives women from human capabilities and utilizing them effectively does deprive itself from uh, the potential for creativity and innovation of the entire population in as much as cross-fertilization is an essential component of a truly creative and productive process, then the marginalization of women and the marginalization of their creative and productive potential does depress the productivity and innovation potential of, women, of men as well. And hence, in terms of uh, being keen on the progress of society at large, the empower this empowerment of women will have to be ended as, far as, as soon as possible. The last point I would like to mention while I have the, the mic is that uh, uh, I agree on the extreme importance of the issue of freedom in, in, in Arab countries and try in, in bringing about the uh, desired changes in national governance and hopefully governance on the regional level and contributing to a better form of governance on the global level. And let me just make a, a, a small piece of publicity. The second issue of the Arab Human Development Report is going to be on knowledge acquisition. The third is going to be on freedom and good governance. I would like to respond to a couple of issues raised. First of all, I would like to make it very clear. I do not believe that all our weaknesses and ills are due to American or European colonialism or continued interference. But I would definitely say that this external dimension cannot be ignored. It is one of the key factors. Definitely internal issues are more important. But Internal freedom is constrained by the global linkages, by the hangover of colonialism, by the continuous impact and influence, covert and overt, of the European and American interference, intervention and influence and manipulation in Arab Muslim and third world countries. So both dimensions must be taken into view. Secondly, I would emphasize that freedom within Muslim countries, Arab countries, third world countries is crucial, is the catalyst. And its absence and existence of repressive regimes has been responsible for the underdevelopment and misuse of resources of the Muslim countries. The security paradigm we have talked a lot about the artificiality of the nation-state. 
May I add that the whole security paradigm in the Arab world is artificial, is not serving the interests of security of the Arab countries. The defense expenditure or expenditure in the name of defense is one of the major drains on our resources, unproductive, helping only the defense industries of the Western countries and failing to provide any security or even relevance to the security or developmental situation of the countries. How can we ignore the external dimension when these are the ground realities? But I must also confess that the real catalyst along with freedom would be creativity within the Muslim countries, self-reliance, motivation. We are suffering because of the impact of imitative approaches, transplantation strategies, which are really non-relevant to the ground situation. Unless we have freedom and creativity, we develop indigenous approaches availing from the experiences of mankind, but rooted in our own values and realities, then only we can make progress. And that is important. I agree about the empowerment of women, and definitely women have played a very important role in Muslim history. They are not enjoying those rights that Islam gives to them today. And we must make every effort to involve them. But respecting our own values, and also we have to realize that every society and every culture has its own modes of economic activities. The role of family as an economic institution, role of Muslim women in Pakistan, for example, in the agricultural society, it's not that they are confined to homes. They are playing an effective economic role, even today. But definitely this needs improvement. And with education, with further technological development, with institutional reforms, their role must increase. There is no conflict between that and the Islamic ethos. Thank you very much. Sorry? Well, Islam has given them that right, you see. But that does not mean a kind of a libertarian society. There is a balance between the two. Yes. Well, uh, I'm really, uh, I mean, uh, the current politics of uh, President Bush, for instance, uh, really worry me. And I find this uh, right-wing agenda a bit, uh, a bit uh, frightening, frightening to the whole world, frightening to uh, the Americans themselves. Uh, this uh, uh, triangle of fundamentalisms, the market fundamentalism, security fundamentalism, and, uh, 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 and the religious fundamentalism, uh, this, this uh, deadly triangle. But uh, the problem is the place from which the argument is coming. Because we, the Arabs and Muslims, keep saying only this and don't say, uh, I mean, we rarely say, in order to be accurate, we rarely say something which is self-critical. So our criticism to what goes on in the West loses its importance, loses its meaning. 
Of course, we are the main responsible. After all, three of the four Khulafa Rashidin, the four Khalifas after Muhammad have been murdered by Muslims. It was not American imperialism nor British imperialism who murdered uh, 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 Umar, Uthman and Ali. So we have to have this onward look to ourselves, to our societies, to the fab social fabric uh, which is breeding uh, uh, many uh, phenomena like violence and so on and so forth. Uh, we, we are enjoying the role of the critic. He, the West, is a poet and we are the critic. So let him write poetry and we criticize. In order to strike a balance, we should start writing poetry. Or, or he should relinquish poetry and become a critic. I mean, <laughs> but this is back to the revolution thing. Isn't it striking that the only popular revolution that took place in our part of the world is the Iranian revolution, the one you can define so-called scientifically a revolution. It was a revolution. The greatest, I mean, the, the, the people who went to the streets and toppled the regime and paralyzed the army, etc. This took place exactly 190 years after the French Revolution. But its main aim was not <coughs> democracy, uh, was not freedom, uh, fraternity, uh, equality. It was religion. It was, okay, the word religion here says many things, and you can put many things in uh, religion. But the main motor behind this revolution was not... Uh, uh, was not a secular uh, uh, aim. Uh, apart from the Iranian revolution, you had uh, some military coups in uh, military coup d'etat in Egypt, Syria, Iraq, uh, you name it. And you have a national revolution in Algeria against the the French uh, against French colonialism. So I think, I mean. Uh, Empirically, you can reach the, the answer you are asking for. Last question over here. Yes. One second, wait for the microphone. Thank you. My name is Ibrahim Karavan. I'm a director of the Middle East Center at the University of Utah. I think we are indebted to Hazim Saghia for sharpening our discussion about the issue of the state, because when it comes to reflecting on a strategy for regional development without taking the role of the state either as an agent, an obstacle, something to be bypassed, uh, as the, the, the report seems to indicate, we will not be able to, to, to go uh, very far. It seems to me that what, what we are witnessing about the state is is perhaps the, the current state in the Arab world, the multi-state system in the Arab world, is its consolidation rather than its erosion. I mean, I, I, I see, for instance, that borders are gaining greater recognition among Arabs. You know, look at, you know, Algeria, Morocco, 
Saudi Arabia and a number of other countries surrounding it, Egypt and the Sudan, I can go on and on, that we are not dealing with some people in the Arab nationalist tradition are so eager to give up uh, their national specificity and, and borders for the sake of a larger entity. Uh, the evidence about that is, 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 not, is not there. And even if it started as, as illegitimate, meaning it started as so-called artificial, 60, 70 years of socialization and educational systems create certain type of familiarity, uh, attachment uh, to, to these, to these uh, uh, borders. And that's why people are willing to fight for these artificial borders. And it's a fact that is very difficult to ignore. Finally, I'm not convinced about this argument about the, the short term and the long term. That is, they are muddling through or surviving in the long, in the short term, but in the in the long run, uh, this will erode. I mean, there's no there's no short there's no long long term that is separate from all the short terms that make it. So in, in that regard, if they survive in the long run, or a number of a number of short runs, they will be with us in the long run, which uh, I don't think is necessarily the, the the unavoidable outcome. I just want a, a strategy of. How do we social scientists bypass uh, existing states under these conditions to achieve regional developments that require political decisions and the issue of who allocates resources, who gains power, who exercises power, and so on? Thank you. Or a comment, not a question. Any other comments, questions? Panelists? to me recently um, discussing these issues of fundamental changes in the way Muslims, Arab think. I was sitting with a friend of mine drinking very lovely, nice glass of French wine and he was smoking ferociously. So when I was critical of Arab Islam, so he said, A'uzu billah ya shaykh. So I said, am I a shaytan al-rajeem? He said, la, astaghfirullah ya shaykh. So there he is, in a sort of, he agrees what he says, but yet is Aib. That is the real issue. It's time to drop Aib. It's less time to look at ourselves much more critically than we used to. Read different contexts, but when you come to politics, when you come to society, it's time that one should look much more fundamentally. And we don't use globalization. Globalization is passing the buck. You know, it's not me, it's somebody else. And then somebody else will say somebody else. It's time to stop at the borders and look inside rather than from the outside. Let me have our panelists, are there any last words? Let me thank my colleagues, thank you uh, for this panel and for this fascinating discussion. We will break for lunch now and reconvene at 2 o'clock. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you.